You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Future Theater. It is the shortest day of the year, the longest night of the year, December 21st, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, hello, hello. Burns, and we are broadcasting on a warmish winter night from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Village, Pennsylvania, on PSN Radio tonight. That's right. The Dark Matter Network is only playing reruns, so no more live shows on Dark Matter, the Dark Matter Digital Network. This is just live on PSN Radio. Thank you for joining us, everybody. You could still find us here Mondays at 10 o'clock Eastern Time every single week. And our producer is the great Angel Espino. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. And oh, Nancy, yeah. and audience. Yeah, and, and I want to. I, I just want to add thank you, Angel, for always being here since November uh, two years ago. Two thousand and ten. Two thousand and ten. No, not twenty ten. No, 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 no. We're skipping over uh, two former producers. We're skipping over Land Lanfear. That was two thousand ten, and then Jamie Havacon, uh, two thousand. 10 until 2000. Where I'm going with this? Where are we? When did we uh when did we all get together? It was what year? Well, we 13? were 13. 13, yeah. Yeah, it was like November, December of 2013. And then we did yeah. all oh, 2014 okay. and all 2015 together. Yeah. So it's been 2 years. Time flies. The dark it, well, it, this has been a hard 2 years because um it just yep. ha- okay, and here's an I, I'm noticing a trend. Every time we as people, Bill and me, get involved with a corporate entity, not PSN, but just corporate, they dump us, come. Of course, now we're not dumped from Dark Matter. We're still going to be on Dark Matter, I believe, at Keith's In pleasure. reruns. In reruns, I believe. Um, but it could change momentarily. But, but the thing is, it seems like corporations close down and make big changes in December, it seems like. Uh, you know, the people who helped us start Future, not Future Theater, um, Filament went on to Google in December and closed down our company. Right. I wonder if the guy who was stalking art took that into consideration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's to make light, of, that's make light he, of the situation. He had a calendar, I'm, I'm convinced, yeah. because you for know, these t- obsessive types. Yeah, for a tiny bit of go time. Crazy. For a tiny bit of time, just to give, I'll give a little Art Bell news, and then there won't be any more Art Bell news reports because Art Bell's off the air. But he, um, he's also off of, he quit Facebook and he quit Belgab, which really breaks my heart because I'm not going to quit Belgab. I love Belgab. It's a really great place to play. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not quitting Belgab, and uh, we're all going to try to support um, Heather and Midnight in the Desert. At least I am. Um, I find this to be a little extreme on Art's part. I mean, really, you've quit Facebook and, and Bill Gabber. I, I mean, what's oh, the point? Well, the point is, here's the point, and I think uh, the Bill Gabbers brilliantly have come up with you know, the solution. He really needs to figure out if he's going to be in the modern world. now. And we're going to talk to our guest tonight, Frank Thayer, about this, because in addition to the Aztec crash, he's also a professional kind of 
a PR person, a journalist. A, well, he teaches journalism. Yeah, but he also specializes in this very sort of thing. How and in in today's modern world, you have to take control of your brand. They say, you know, you can't just submit your book to a publisher. You have to make sure you have a brand. And Art Bell, the brand, is severely hurt because Art Bell doesn't perhaps have a good PR team that keeps him away from the public, basically, because the public is too harsh. To do good, you know, you can't go and do good shows if people are shooting at you and if people are really crappy mean. Um, see, what happened is, um, no, no, what happened is the Internet happened, okay, is what happened. People can speak <laughs> yeah. up, you know. And furthermore, um, hearing that Howard Stern is going to be quitting and coming onto the Internet, I yep. think, yeah, see, I think... <laughs> If anybody wants to follow and, and but, make but some... Didn't he sign, but didn't Howard Stern sign a multi-year contract with Sirius again? That's what I read. I read both, believe it or That's not. That's the news, that, that he signed a multi-year contract. No, well, he's, uh, he's been uh, rumored to want like, to jump over on to the Internet for a couple of years now. He's been rumored to have been saying that uh, that is the future of his uh, show because the Internet is global and he could, be a, he could monetize it a little bit easier where he makes more of the money. So, I mean, there's different reasons, but he had gone on record in saying that. Yeah, and right, see, he and, did, and but he did sign with Sirius, and, I, and I'm wondering. Did, yeah. <laughs> He's a country yeah, so that's, he did that's, that. That's the personal heartbreak of Art Bell. I got schlonged in the bell gab for saying the thing about the alcoholic father, but I mean, you know, I'm over the alcohol. I mean, you know, no offense, we're all grown up now, yeah. but there are kids whose fathers go out for cigarettes and don't come back, or or who come back three <laughs> weeks later and say everything's cool, everything's cool, and and you know, and so. I got schlong for that, so I shouldn't have, but yeah, eh, you know, you, you say what you want to say. Don't listen to our or show. Or get wound up on top of a coal heap being there by a UFO. I mean, these things happen. That's true. Yeah. That's true. true. Yeah, but anyway, so um, I, Art Bell, an artist, has interfaced with the Internet, um, and you just cannot control the Internet. It's like, contr- it's like trying to control the world. Reap the, what, what's the great quote? Uh, uh, when you reap, reap the, the uh, uh, um, uh, reap the whirlwind. Yeah, reap the whirlwind. I forget this. You know, there's a great book. You're, you're sowing something. I don't know what you're sowing. Yeah, we're we're losing it tonight. But <laughs> say say angel. So angel, there is a big piece of news in your life. I bet. In my life. I bet you went to the movies. I did. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and you are without a doubt. Were you in the whole in the movie? Were you the number one fan, or or were you among like? Crazy people. Well, there is definitely a, a lot of fanatics and crazy people there this weekend. And uh, she's talking about, of course, Star Wars that opened up this weekend. And uh, I went both on Friday and Saturday. I went with family on Friday and friends on Saturday. And yeah. uh, it was packed. I mean, there was every every theater was sold out in this place. Yeah. So I saw it on IMAX 3D, and it was just incredible. Yeah. And it where really did you was. where did you sit? Actually, you know what? We got really good seats. We got middle of the uh, the theater. Okay, the best, you, well, for 3D, that's the best place to sit. And oh, you yeah, have, you don't want to sit on the edge for 3D because part of the 3D isn't <laughs> 3D anymore. Right, exactly. And I got like, th- when I say middle, I'm talking about center of the center. Like, we were like right in the middle of the middle of the theater. It was perfect. Well, were you for, I mean, do you have, are these assigned seats or do you have to pay extra? No, 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 we, we have to just get there early. And <laughs> we got there really early. I mean, I was there like 
two and a half hours before the movie started just to get good seats. Really? Well, now yeah. there's a, there's a bell gabber named Barfly who is at, in Key West, and My he got stand for that name. Jeez, Barfly, yeah. Tough. And he um, he got on his motorcycle and he drove 120 miles to see it. To to yes, to see it. And then he rode back on his motorcycle in like blistering winds and rain and stuff. <laughs> 120 miles each way to see this movie. That's a good man right there. That's a good yeah, man. Yeah, I'm serious. Okay, so let's say you sat in the middle. Um, did your family cause you any grief? Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like talk the whole time? No, no. Actually, everybody was kind of glued in, in, you know, to the movie itself. It's a very entertaining movie. I mean, you know, everybody knows what Star Wars is, right? But the great thing whenever they start a new trilogy is it's literally a whole new set of characters. You're introduced to a brand new story that you've never seen before. So, you know, it really captures you. And the way that J.J. Abrams directed this thing was just, it was a masterpiece. And, and give us a little yeah, background. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that because J.J. Abrams on, really yeah. has a funny way of directing something um, when he did the Star Trek piece. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the last Star Trek, I was surprised. It's like, it was like the, um, like the show Lost. Where somehow things go off and they get lost. Well, is right. that his? Was that his show, Lost? Yeah, I that mean, was is that what he's lost known? with J.J. Abrams? That, that's what um, he's known for, right? Revolution, I think, was J.J. Abrams. Okay, and I always confuse him. Is he considered the most brilliant person in sci-fi these days? Would you say? Definitely no, one of. Joss Whedon is. Uh, I don't know. JJ's uh, had more hit films, and he's done a lot more um, really brilliant work. Joss Whedon did uh, you know a couple of TV shows, and he had The Avengers, but right. that's it. He's never he's done anything else but The Avengers. I mean, yeah. What, okay. So so Buffy. Lou has, wait, Lou has given me thank you Lou. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The reap whirlwind. The whirlwind. Thank you. By Lou. the way, Christopher oh. J. Brown is on the line. I'm sure he wants to uh, chime in on his uh, Star Wars experience oh. this week. You know it. You know it. I I lived the Star Wars dream too, and I tell you, it was everything that I remembered as a little kid. That feeling, walking out of just—I didn't think it could be done, but it, but it, but it really—it was fantastic. It was fantastic in the sense where it for for what they did, it, it was amazing. I had to sense. You know, uh, the best part about it, it, it felt like Star Wars. It didn't yeah, feel like it felt like Star Wars. Yeah, it didn't feel like you're watching some kind of cartoon wannabe Star Wars, like the prequels. It didn't feel like you know goofy or funny. Like People Dark didn't like the prequels. It seems like right. You no, know, well, the diehard fans had problems with elements in the prequels, like the overuse of CGI, yeah. uh, Jar Jar Binks. Everything you know, looked major really issue. real. Yeah, and this thing, JJ real. went back to practical effects, which is I love the fact that he did that. I mean, everything looked like it was a living world, like. Yeah, like you really yeah. feel like you were there. Like when they're on the planet Jakku, and you see all the aliens running around, you see like all the stuff that's there. You know that stuff is really there. You know what I mean? Yeah, There's yeah, no yeah. CGI placing like exactly. something there. Well, when you, you see may- BBA rolling around, the little droid that rolls around, when you see that, that's a real droid. That's not a CGI. They really created cool. a droid for that. It's awesome. Really, really. Yeah, and what? And yeah. okay. So now you said it was the beginning of a trilogy. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So what does that mean? Uh, when are the next two? Well, the next movie that comes out in this particular trilogy comes out in uh, 2017. Yeah. Right. Okay, so and that, what's, what's the mythology of the trilogy? What do people need to know to go and sit down and enjoy the movie? 
Well, I mean, if you even look, even if you don't know much about the prequels or the original trilogy, you can still right. watch this movie and still be caught up enough to where you would know more or less, you know, what's ha- what's happening here because they kind of give you hints of mm-hmm. this person belong, you know, is re- re- related to this person. This person knows this that, so they kind of catch you up, you know, in bits and pieces. So even a person who hasn't seen the past movies can still kind of like understand what's happening. Uh, but the basic plot here is we we meet this girl named Ray. She's on a planet called Jakku, which is like a desert planet. And on this planet, she's a scavenger, meaning she just goes out and tries to find artifacts and stuff to sell so she can survive, basically. Uh, we find out that she was dumped there on this planet years ago when she was a little girl by her parents, who she doesn't have any memory of or doesn't remember. Uh, you know, We don't know if they blocked her memory, if her memory was wiped. We really don't know what her experience was, but we know that she has no memory of her folks. And she meets this guy who's a stormtrooper for the for the uh, First Order, which is what came after the Empire. And the original, the original story had the Empire, which was Darth Vader, the Emperor. That was what they called themselves was the Empire. After the Empire was de- was taken down by Luke in Return of the Jedi, what came after them was you know the people that picked up and continued forward their mission, called themselves the First Order, which is like this is like the following of the Empire. Mm-hmm. And we pick up the story with this guy named uh, Finn, who's a, a stormtrooper, and he's a deserter. He leaves a, he leaves the squad because he doesn't like what's going on. He at first, in the beginning of the movie, when you see him on the planet, and, and they're on Jakku, and they're down there for a mission. I don't want to give too much spoilers away. but Right, don't do the terrible yeah. spoilers, yeah. They're in, a, they're in a mission, and he just doesn't like what's happening, and he des- decides to you know turn his back on the First Order and desert what they're doing because he just he doesn't want to kill people. That's not what he signed up for. So they, we turn, it turns out that this is a stormtrooper with a heart of gold, basically. And as he deserts them, he ends up crash-landing on Jakku, the same planet, later on. And uh, which was the same planet they were killing the other people, but he goes back to the planet, crash lands there, meets Ray, and then the adventure begins for Ray and Finn. Which I love the names, by the way, Ray and Finn. Yeah, uh, right, uh, very, right. Very like poetic and literally like you know Huckleberry Finn, you know. And right, uh, even right. uh, the best pilot in the galaxy in this movie, his name is Poe, Poe Dameron. Very cool yeah. names. I mean, the names yeah. really fit the Star Wars universe perfectly. I mean, J.J. Abrams, uh, Lawrence Castan, and uh, Michael Arndt were the ones who wrote the script, and they did just a, a phenomenal job. And you can kind of tell... Larry Kasdan wrote the script? Wow. I yeah, and he, he was the guy who wrote the best Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, and he also did Return of the mm-hmm. Jedi. Now, he was brought back to write this script along with Michael Arndt, who had come up with the outline of the story, but he hadn't really fleshed out because he, he was having issues on how to get the story right. And his main issue was he wanted to put Luke Skywalker in the movie, but he, every time he wrote a, you know stuff with Luke in it, it took away from everybody else and became about Luke only. So they, they really had to find a way to make the movie work and still introduce Luke Skywalker back into the story because it's been 30 years since we've seen Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. So the way that J.J. Uh, Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan, you know, the way they wrote this script out of the outline that they were given, I mean, it was brilliant. I don't want to give anything away with Luke and what happens, but it's just it's the scene that, you know, that where he first comes out, it is very touching. It's powerful. He doesn't say anything, but it's just so emotional what he, what you know you see in that scene that it works beautifully. And when you see the movie, it just it feels like it actually makes you feel like you're really back in the '70s and the '80s watching the original trilogy. And it really makes you hyped up for episode eight and nine when you know they're going to come out in the next few years. I mean, I can't wait. Well, for Mark Hamill isn't playing Luke, is he? Yeah, he's playing Luke again. Yes. Yeah. He oh, dropped. Luke is he wow. dropped fifty pounds mm-hmm. to be in this movie in the next movies. Oh, good. He well, looks he's phenomenal. A, he's, a, he's a tough guy. You know, I believe right after 
Star Wars, or some at some point in Mark Hamill's life, didn't he go, yeah. kind of go through a windshield and basically lose his? Yeah, face? It was, yes, yes. Between Star Wars yep. and and Empire Strikes Back, it was uh, what yeah. happened was his, his his accident there. Yeah, car accident. I think. In fact, in uh, Empire Strikes Back, when you see him in the early on in the movie, he gets attacked by a, the big ice monster. Um, and when he gets attacked by him, it scars his face up in the movie. They mm-hmm. did that in the movie to explain why his face was all scarred up from the accident. Wow. So they, kind of, uh. they took one thing to you know, explain the other. Yeah. Which I thought was very smart of, of Lucas and them. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, involved in a very terrible accident. But, you know, not only that, the last few years hasn't been kind to uh, to Mark. I mean, he's really let himself go a little bit. Uh, yeah. And he really wasn't looking too great. Uh, before this movie, but they told him he needs to drop about fifty pounds to be uh, involved in this movie, and he did. Well, and you, and you know about uh, Carrie Fisher. Fisher, yeah, she, she, yeah, she also dropped a lot of weight for this. Yep, yeah, she, she did good. But you know, the thing is, a Carrie Fisher, she still kind of got a little bit of the bar fly in her, and and so it's hard to kind of get. That. <laughs> it's, it's like you know, everybody got together with a cat. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Hey, where's 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 Carrie Fisher? Here, they were going to go outside, and everybody goes outside and yells at, you know, it goes it calls at Bud's bar, Bud's bar, and there's Carrie Fisher, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she, she, she was real. actually, yeah, but she was really great as as Leia again. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the thing with you oh, know okay. after after like the last uh, twenty years and the stuff that she's gone through with you know the addictions and whatnot, I was kind of worried about her being able to you know get back into this role." But she, like, nailed it. I mean, she was very, you know, on point. She was supposed to be a general in this one. She's no longer Princess Leia. Now she's General Leia. Spoiler. Cool. Cool. And, uh, she's That's a perfect. very, uh, yeah, she's a very authoritative. Does she still have you know, the hair? She has a different hairstyle, but it's, it works. Oh. It's an, it's an, have an the old buns. lady bun now. Yes. Oh. It's very well, nice. Well, she's an old she's an old lady. You know, as they say, it happens. You know. It does. Well, uh, yeah. And it's, Can't stay young uh, forever, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's a shame because you're not supposed to put weight on. It's um, like a sin, and growing old is the mortal sin. And it actually is the mortal sin when you think about it. None of us would do it if we could avoid it. Of course. And, yeah. You know, and, and yet, um, for example, if you want to, like, I get, I'm going to keep referring to Art Bell. I'm sorry. You know, I will. Because partly it's his age. Um I don't I'm sure he was he's been on the internet a lot but probably not as a guy on the internet trying to do stuff the way you know once you put yourself on the internet in a business capacity you learn a lot about the internet and you learn mm-hmm. a lot about customer service and keeping you know it depends on your where you are in life I mean right, you know right. and um I think art just kind of hit the 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 buzzsaw of the internet and just thought it you know it, that kind of fandom, of course, none of us have ever seen that kind of fandom, and I think this is a terrible, terrible um, uh, cautionary tale, because all I can tell you is the little bit I have ever learned about his numbers, they are enormous compared to normal people's numbers, and so because of that, with great power comes great responsibility, and so he probably sh- would be wise to have had a buffer between himself and the internet, and just you know, gotten himself onto some kind of a, you know, go on Pinterest, find a little obscure hobby like, you know, candle making or something, and talk to those people. Don't I can definitely see to... Art Bell doing candles. I definitely yeah. See that. Well, <clears throat> well, I wanted to add, my, you know, um, we will get back to Star Wars in just a minute because I want to find out what you didn't like. 
But I wanted to tell you that's a, that's going to be a very short conversation. I know that's why I'm, that's why I'm, that's why I want to do my thing first because you'll start and it'll be one little thing that's bugging you. And I wanted to find out if any of your prior predictions for the plot have, have turned out to be coming true. But um, I just wanted to fill everybody in. Uh, in the in the five years we've been doing this show, we have in fact this is probably our fifth Christmas, and every year. I always like to give some um, moral support to the people out there who are trying really hard to keep it together and do something special for somebody because people are. They're, they're trying, you know, they're scraping their money together. They're scraping their time and they're, fine, you know, they're making stuff. And I just wanted to say it does seem to get easier, um, at least if you're making all your own presents in the craft manner, you know, like sewing and stuff. Um, I, you know, my poor relatives, I'm looking at a pillar right now that's not kind of coming together and uh, my poor relatives get stuck with homemade presents, but, you know, but it's coming together, together better, better this year. And I have been complaining every single year saying, oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. This year I started early. Mm -hmm. So note to self it's it's not as hard but anyway christmas is hard and then if you're not if you're not entertaining and having people over and going to crazy then it's even harder to share love but you know with things like bell gab a little little personal forum little bella haven now i haven't uh, been on bell gab in the last few days how are they uh taking this whole thing with art oh god it's every social media i mean how are they taking it very bad huh well, here's the, I mean, I only know Belgab because I don't know Facebook. So I think if you leave Facebook, it's just a vacuum. Um, but the bigger problem right now is Heather Wade, who is right now uh, helming Midnight in the Desert, herself is considering leaving it all in solidarity. I feel bad for her because she really is in a bad situation. I mean, she really Oh, is. yeah. I mean, and yeah. honestly, look, you know, all kidding aside, whatever you feel about her, you know, whatever. Um, you know, whatever you feel her personality is on radio, whatever. I feel bad for the situation she inherited. I mean, this is a no-win oh. situation. Yeah, a lot of pressure, and she's talk about like I mean, a pro. Talk about shoes to fill with yeah. an audience that's well, rabid about the person. But, it's an impossible you know, situation. But she's she's torn between two really big, uh, you know, rocks and hard places. One is her great respect for art and, and her true fandom. She's a true fan. Um, and compare and doing what he you know she's his she's his producer she's been his producer right. um no lou heather heather's thinking of leaving uh bell gab and facebook just because it's so mean but but um the other rock or hard thing is that she's wanted to be on the radio she started you know she got herself a setup and stuff and and she was on her way and this is a chance to be on the radio but it also is a horrible chance to be on the radio because you're getting all the crappy stuff up front. All the haters are hating on you before you even start. Most people, they only have three listeners when they start, you know, and two of them like them. <laughs> and the other one, and, you know. And the other one's a friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I remember when we did our very first shows and um, our really good friend, Al Lemberg, <clears throat> was always, and he still is, he's always willing to pick up the phone and just say, hi, yeah, I'll be on the show. And it was like, we were like a bunch of lifeboats in a lightning storm out on the water. Uh, everything that could go wrong kept going wrong. It was hilarious. And, you know, um, anyway, so, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So anyway, so... You know what sucks about our leaving Facebook? Because, you know, eventually it will come back. Because everybody who leaves always comes back. Yeah. You know, I wonder if he's going to come back and I, we're going to have to all, like, friend request him again. What are the chances I'm going to get in on time? Because, you know, he's going to have a lot of friend requests as soon as he comes back. Well, that's the... <laughs> as, you know, but is there any solution, guys? Sucks. Or, or you, you're not, Bill's not going to answer because he's not on social media. But is there, is there any solution short of not reading reading it anymore and quitting? Is there any solution to squash the trolls down who are just having fun with you. Well, I mean, at this point, look, in all honesty, look, and I respect the heck out of Art Bell, but uh, the way the situation was handled was not very well handled. And uh, a lot of people were upset because they've been waiting for Art to come back for two years now. And a lot of people have a lot of, you know, invested in Art and in in his return. Uh, And the way that he just left was kind of abrupt. Uh, People are trolling. People are doing a lot of things they're doing because they're just either upset or pissed or or both, you know, or whatever. Uh, So I understand why some of the people might be, you know, hitting them up on Facebook or making comments here and there. But you know what? Art Bell has to do what what he has to do for himself and for his family, first and foremost. And forget about everything else. I think it's a little bit extreme to start just like quitting all life in social media and everything just because some people are trolling you. You know what? Make it so people can't comment on your on your wall, and that's it. End of story. Nobody can comment on your wall anymore. You, know? mm. you can do that also, and you can still comment yourself and put whatever it is you want to put well, on see, your wall. Well, see, a, a so. PR person could have easily told Art that, probably. You probably. know, let's just change it from A to B. I think he's been under just a lot of pressure, and we don't oh, know. He must have been, yeah. Behind the scenes, yeah. there could be. There could be so much more going on, mm-hmm. and uh, and you look for clues in social media. You look for clues on the internet, and you know they may be, I hope, trying to entrap somebody. You know, could be. Um, yeah, could be. And so there's that. But um, yeah, so I'm going to be listening tonight after our show. I still consider us a lead in. We're a lead in to somebody, and <laughs> we're a lead, we're a lead out. And um, you know, and then last. Let's see, after Skywatchers, you guys were able to stay on the air a little bit longer. Yes, right? indeedy. Yep. And I yep. wanted to, and I, I haven't had time to tweet, and I'm sorry, and I'll, I'll do it anyway later. Um, I wanted to remind people, if you haven't heard the Skywatchers show from this past Wednesday, and you would like some closure on our Dark Matter two years, I guess, that was a fun show. That was another kind mm-hmm. of, yeah. a lot of hosts were on. Um, yep. Yep, and you know, in fact, I I owe Jesse Randolph here a little <laughs> Skype. He wondered who our guest was, and so he was on. Yep, he was highly upset over this whole thing with Art. I mean, very very yeah. upset. And, and look, me and I've known Jesse for years, and you're, we're talking about a guy who you know idolized Art Bell for many mm-hmm. many years. Um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't go as far as say worshipped, but very damn close to the to it. You know, because he was a big big fan of arts, like me and like like millions of other people out there listening. Uh, so for him to get that upset kind of really tells you that it's right. pretty messed up the way that the situation was handled. I mean, well, I it, feels, he, it feels what, so what unfair to, to yeah, no, like look, someone, yeah, someone said on, um, another podcast, just, I can't remember which one. I think it was the one right before this podcast, not included, I think okay. where they said, right. uh, it's like, uh, arts punishing everybody for the right. few bad trolls. Right. We're, none, none of us did anything and we've been mm-hmm. denied our entertainment our fun we've been denied our our, our art bell but look i think unfortunately i think it really uh stems to this i think what jesse said the other day on the show i I think really he reflects what a lot of the fans are feeling and um that is a sad situation that fans are feeling like that 
Yeah, they think Art Bell because is this should be a, hired this man should, and he can come yeah. back and come this should back. be a this should be a, a happy situation right now. We should be like oh. celebrating the fact that Art Bell's back and radio and and doing his thing and uh, the fact that he's gone again and the way he left. I mean, it's really just a sad situation. And yeah. unfortunately, I do think that a lot of folks out there really echo the sentiments of uh, of Jesse from last week. I really do think, and that again, it's just it's sad. Never thought I'd I'd believe that people would feel like that about Art and and about the whole situation. I never thought that would come to that, you know. Yeah, so, I know, and I'm bummed out too. I was hoping to get on a show, and I was interviewed to get on it. And, and I, 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 you know, I get with you on to be on the shows. Jesus, well, you know, I mean, we've we've all the hosts have been justly criticized because we all have had our little our little irons in the fire. We had our little ideas that that wonderful audience was going to somehow or another uh, turn its attention to us at some point, and we would have, you know. Um, an easier path of it, but I don't. Yeah, I kind of don't want that audience at this point. It's too big. It's too. No, I, I want that audience. Come on yeah, over. Come yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, you're tough. You're tough. Come to you're me, tough. Vespa. Yeah, Come you're to tough. Come to me, Princess Vespa. <laughs> you know, okay. So, by the way, by the way, by the way, uh, I don't know if you heard she... the news. Princess Vespa is not from Star Wars. She's from another space adventure called Spaceballs. And I don't know if you heard. Recently announced after the Force Awakens was such a, a big hit this week. Um, Mill Brooks announced he's making no, Spaceballs too. Really? Oh, good. Yes, the oh, Schwartz Awakens. Maybe Schwartz be with him. Yep. It's official. I blame I blame Mill Brooks for the raucous comedy that we have today, and I think he's love happy that man. To see, yeah, love that yeah. man. Okay, so what didn't you like about the film? Would you say, Angel? Uh, the fact that I have to wait two years to see the the follow up. That's oh. really. <laughs> they re- Honestly, they, look, this movie has very, very, very little to dislike. There's very few flaws, and uh, there's the only thing that I would say maybe was a, kind of a flaw, but I really don't see it. And but I've seen some fans say, "Well, it's Captain Phasma, who's one of the new characters. She's the the one that's dressed all chromed out. Uh, she's a stormtrooper that's dressed all chromed out. Uh, she's actually like the leader or like one of the uh, like the captains of the stormtroopers, so she leads them in battle." And uh, she has very few, you know, very little screen time. She's only in the movie for maybe like five minutes. Uh, and it's very choppy, the scenes. But it's one of the main scenes with her. It's a very important scene in the movie. But the reason I don't get upset that she didn't have a whole lot of screen time, which some fans did, was because this is part of a trilogy. I'm sure she's going to get more screen time in the next movies. You can only, you know, show so much in a two-hour film. Uh, so it, that didn't really bother me as much as some people online. But other than that, I mean, there really is very few flaws in this movie. The acting is phenomenal by everybody. Adam Driver is incredible as Kylo Ren. I mean, just his performance is light years better than any other Sith Lord in any other Star Wars movies. I would even dare to say that if this continues on the way it's going, he might be more menacing and evil and more incredibly badass than even Darth Vader. I'm looking that, him up right tough. now, Adam Driver. I believe he was the scary guy in Friends who came out, you know, like he was like a scary guy. Nobody Friends. wanted to date him. Does that ring a bell, Adam Driver? Let me just say here. I'll no, tell he you was in the, I think it was in the movie Girls. Uh, came out a couple years ago. Yeah, Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah, wow. Yeah, not movie. Adam Driver has always been um, the... He's kind the, of a weird, evil-looking dude. He's always been the, yeah. the pretend boyfriend of Lena... What? Dunham. Uh, Dunham. Yeah, you know the tall, goofy guy? Um, you know, they have lots yep. of sex, and he's... He's weird and she's weird and they have weird sex together. Adam Driver. He's this he's even in her early movies. Her movie was called I think Dollhouse 
with her no. mother's. Yeah. Anyway, okay. if you're a Lena Dunham fan, which nobody here is, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love her. Yeah, Adam Driver. Um, you know, so yeah. Um, he's a he, and he plays a Sith Lord. He he's funny. Um, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to give away exactly the yeah, character okay. that he plays because it's really, really interesting and, and and it's a big plot point in the movie who he is in the movie. It, yeah, because he's really a gawky guy. That's the whole thing about this guy. You know. Yeah. You know. We tried mm-hmm. to watch the other day and we just could not stay with it. Was the uh, well? Actually, we did watch the whole thing, but hardly. Well, anyway, it's the it was the making of um, the guy who did. Bill can help me out here. The uh, the movie Dune. That never got. Oh made. right! It was about the making. Yeah, it was about the the What's first the guy name? who tried to make Dune. Dune was made by. Um, I'm looking him up. Uh, I'm looking him up now. You guys don't know this movie. Oh, I've seen Dune. Dune. Uh, f- uh, wasn't Frank Darabont? Didn't he do the uh, no. Dune also? The movie that never no, was. Um, no, uh, the movie that never was. Joe Do- uh, Joe Dorosky. Joe Dorosky. Okay, Joe right. Dorosky. Uh, is a guy who has always made weird movies, and Dune was almost going to be made with him. It went, it went, to, it came together with monumental talent. Okay, like um, you know, you know who H.R. Geiger is, Giger. Oh, of course, yeah, H. R. Geiger, yeah. yeah. And of course, he was going to do all the, he was going to do all the visuals and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. And um, it just kind of blew up. It's an interesting movie if you like. All of this kind of stuff. You might have you seen the remake yeah. uh, that they made for the Sci-Fi Network. Uh, I think it was in two thousand. No, I it was like a, it was a mini series. It was really, really good. You should check it out. It was actually I, I thought it was better than the original movie. Now huh. the special effects were kind of on par. You know, they were well, the movie the, the, the movie was David Lynch. Right, David Lynch is the original director with Frank Herbert as the right. writer. Um, right. Wrote the novel Frank Herbert and David Lynch Alejandro also wrote the screenplay. Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. And the, the original starred uh, Kyle MacLachlan. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan, yeah. yeah, and yeah. The, and the beautiful and Patrick woman. Stewart, correct? Yeah, yes, Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. And and of course the, the mother uh, was the beautiful woman oh, Francesca uh, Annis. Francesca mm-hmm. Annis, and for old time people, if you ever saw the series called Lily about um, you know the Jersey Lily, uh, she was a turn of the century Princess Diana type, turn of the century. She was turn of the century Kardashian, quite frankly. Nice. She was no. Yeah, she was. Once. She was a. She was a beauty queen. She she basically fooled around with royalty. But you know what? She it's the, the bottom mom. of the hour, and we have to. Okay, bring now her are guests. we doing? But Angel, are we doing bottom of the hour stuff? Um, of course. Okay. Look at commercials. <laughs> okay. Well, go for it. We okay now. Um, can Bill set up before we bring um uh, Frank on? Can Can Bill set up Aztec a little bit? Yes, go for it, Bill. Because he's really good at that sort of thing. Yeah, he is. And, well, basically, um, what we're talking... Okay, look, real quick, because this is like a one-sentence thing. The <laughs> Aztec crash happened in March 1948. It was the other crash, apps, like six months, nine months after Roswell. It was a, a craft that was seen over Los Alamos and crashed in the Aztec desert, actually near Roswell, New Mexico, but, I mean, it was a different crash altogether. Supposedly, the crash was discovered before the Army got there, a group yep. of uh, maintenance workers, landscape workers, peeked inside the portholes for this thing. They saw these little men, little humanoid figures. Uh, they were dead. The humanoid figures were supposedly taken to Hangar 18, and the entire craft was taken to right field. So that, in a short of a but, the Aztec case has become more 
uh, the subject of controversy that it has the UFO landing. First, it was dismissed as a total hoax. It was a hoax thing. It was a fake Roswell. Then uh, the Ramses, who've been working about this with co-authors of the book on Aztec from New Page Books, working on this for 30 years, um, working with Frank Thayer, who's our guest tonight, to interview the witnesses that there really was an Aztec crash, there really was a craft there, it was a circular 100-foot craft that uh, did actually land on the de- crash, land on the desert floor. Um, the crash corroborates with um, Air Force records about engaging a UFO. And so um, that's the bottom line of the story of Aztec, but it is the witnesses that the Ramses and Frank Thayer have uncovered after all these years uh, who are still talking about it. And some of these witnesses are some pretty credible people who were actually there. One guy actually looked through the portholes. So this is uh, an incredible story of the resurrection of a UFO event, Aztec. Right, so it's going to so be a break. good UFO show yeah. tonight, that's for yeah, sure. Indeed. Yes, so, so let's take our break. We'll be back with our guest, Frank Thayer, who is one of the co-authors of the book Aztec from New Page Books. So stay with us on PSN Radio. Chris, hey Chris, this is you, you're, welcome. Peter Live, you're welcome. And to we'll stay. be back after uh, this. Chris. in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes, that George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fellow. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www. 
SecretsOfDelshaw.com to learn more. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. We are back from our break. Thanks for sticking with us with our guest. We are back with is Frank Thayer, the co-author of Aztec at New Page Books. And we are on the PSN radio network. I don't, so, I don't think Frank is on the line yet, so let's just kind of... Oh, yeah, Frank is actually, on the line. Yeah, we're having a, a little... Uh, yeah, see, I asked on. Angel some more Star Wars questions at the break. Oh, and and completely threw me off. In another galaxy. Far, far away. Another, but it's okay. We'll get him on right now. It's, no worries. We're not on dark okay, matter anymore. Okay, we're getting him so. on the line right now. Everybody, don't don't. It's all good. We have a little ring. Stay with here. us for our star Star Wars discussion. Yeah. As opposed to a Star Trek uh, Star Trek discussion. <laughs> I think I I think the big thing in Hollywood news about Star Wars. Ah, one ringy dingy. There we go. Almost there. Two ringy dingies. Oh boy. Come on, Frank. Three ringy dingies. A machine should come on. Did he change his number or anything since you gave it to me? No, it's the number I gave to Angel and to you, that same yep. number. Hello. You reach 525 Frank. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Pick up the phone. That was not good. <laughs> Pick up the phone. Oh, are we are we live right now? We are live, oh, yes, indeed. We are live. Okay, well then yeah. let's let's um, let's take this moment to talk about um, the feelings of the, the the. Okay, the great news about today. The great news about indeed. today is well, as soon as today, today is over, as soon as today is over, tomorrow starts. As far as I'm concerned, the first day of spring. It's the first day that's longer. Yes, we're on our way back up into the light. I feel it's a great ah. moment because you know there are people. I used to have this thing called seasonal affective disorder. I used to have it so bad where when I saw the one of the earthquakes in California, I couldn't believe it was November, and I couldn't believe they're wearing flip-flops and shorts, and I'm thinking, ay, ay, ay. And when I moved to California, I was able to get enough sun, and I didn't have <clears throat> seasonal affective disorder anymore, which basically means you want to climb into your bed and eat white food. Basically, just climb out of your bed to go to the bathroom and get more white food. You know, rice and bread and pasta with cream sauce. And sugar? Um, well, but this is back in the day. <laughs> oh, Nancy, you're, you're getting me very hungry right now, Nancy. Yeah, so. but I mean, the white food seems to satisfy. And of course, what, I'm, what you're trying to do with sleeping and eating white food is you're, you're trying to raise your endorphins. You're trying to raise your... 
uh, what do you call this? Something, you know, it's, it's, I, I can get very scientific if that were this kind of show, but it's not. This is four days before Christmas. And our kids, our, our kids are visiting tomorrow. So our Christmas starts tomorrow. This is basically crunch time, crunch time. Um, I'm sewing up the last of the goody, goody little presents I'm making and stuff and so forth. And so, um, this is the first time I've been sitting down the whole entire day. And Bill put all the balls on the tree. That's right. This oh, is ball right. day. By the way, every year, every year we have this thing called ball day. And in ball day, I put the balls on the Christmas tree. By the way, guys, we have a caller on the line. Chameleon, you're on the line. Oh. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Is this Cam? Yep. Hi, Cam. How are you? Uh, pretty good. <clears throat> I couldn't get you guys' chat room to work. That's why I was calling in. Is, yeah, I'm is trying there to fix an alternative that. Alternative place to no. chat. Oh, okay. I'm trying to fix that, actually. I don't know what's uh, happening with it, but I'll fix it in a minute. Okay, no well, worries. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to fix Indeed. it. Indeed. Oh, no, I mean, great show so far. I mean, I'm, I've been listening. It's just I've been wanting to ask questions, too, so I was just like, but the topics keep shifting. No, I'm not, that's what I was saying. The topics moved, so I don't even remember what the last well, couple questions I had heard, were. But. Have you ever heard of the Aztec crash? Uh, no. Is that a recent one? or No. No, see that's the thing. 1948. It, yeah, 1948. Oh wow! But it's a but it's a really big deal. It's not just a little crash. It is it is either bigger than Ros, Roswell, or it didn't happen. And our guest tonight will help clear up. But also, there seems to if have been a government. Get him on. Yeah, if we can get him on, maybe Bill can call the number that. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, we're going to take another break at the end. We're going to just kind of we'll take, take the limelight or something. Hold on, we're going to take another break at the end of the hour. Uh, that's a couple minutes we can get him on and. Right, and okay. I believe I believe there might be more to it than that, and, and that's why the new book. You see, I think it has to do uh-huh. with a uh, you know more like um, recovering this up for well, sure. Right. Well, they interviewed. Yeah, they interviewed found, a bunch or was of new this witnesses. Something that was uncovered in paperwork. No, no, no. Found, found, found. Oh wow! Witness. Yeah, found, found, found. You guys have links to that, or? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Go to futuretheater.com dot com and yeah, start there. there, and go to uh, Frank Thayer. And then when you go to Frank Thayer, you'll see he's uh, he's very he's a very good writer and very succinct. And you will see a very succinct, uh, you know, the Aztec UFO incident. You'll see a very succinct uh, to- uh, retelling of it, you know. Um, and then you'll be able to see. But I was I was kind of hoping Frank could kind of walk us through the high points. Which okay, I'm on Amazon right now. I see his book. Uh-huh. Kind of reading the. That's the bigger link. The top link where his name is is the, where his site is. You see. You see. Yep. Yeah. I saw. <laughs> I'm seeing. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, I've never even heard of this one. Yeah, um, it, it's a it's a really important crash, and for years the whole point of it was that it was simply regarded as a big hoax, like it never really happened. People were making it up. It was a big tourist thing. Okay, and well, in fact, it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I can add a little. In fact, if Lou would just call in, uh, he by the could... way, we have another we have another caller on the line. Four two three, you're live on uh, Future Theater. Hello, this is Charles. Hi, hey, Charles. Hi, Charles. Hey, Charles. What's up, buddy? How are you all doing? You um, found us. Good. Yes, I found you. I'll never lose you. <laughs> You'll never lose me. Um, I have. Um, I, I want to talk to you some about the art thing, Nancy. I've got some insight. The 
stuff that happened before he went on that I tried to get a hold of him. I tried every channel. And I was not even thinking about this. This was before any of this stuff came up. And uh, I was walking through the house, and I heard a voice say, Will you tell my husband? Will you tell my husband? And I said, Who is You know what? I remember you saying this. And it was Ramona. I, I remember, you, okay, you, I remember this. It's all, it's on the air. We we talked about this. And he... Oh, hold on, hold on. Say, say it again about Ramona. What happened with Ramona? I missed it. Uh, that uh, I, I heard a voice, and it said, tell my husband. Tell my husband. I said, who are you? Ramona Bell. Okay. And if he needed to contact her and do a certain thing, I, I know right now what he needs to do about that. And I think it is her spirit that is throwing. Hi, Frank. Um, I got your email. If if you're there, we're trying to reach you. Yeah. Uh, so just turn the machine off, and we'll. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're going to play right now. No, believe in the mute button. Great, great big round <laughs> table, isn't it? Yeah, he's great there. That's the good thing. Guys. Turn the answer machine off. Thanks. Good job, Bill. <laughs> yeah, the man. <laughs> Anyone can do it, Bill Chan. Ah, uh, so, so there is well, verification that I had mentioned this earlier. I, Angel, I if, you could, if you could call him again, Angel, he's there. I told him to turn his machine off. Okay, I'll call him again right now. Okay. And, I don't think Bill uh, realized. Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead, Charles. Bill doesn't realize what. I do think that things, the water could be still, if stilled, if he would do this particular event and what he has to do. But when you say the water could be stilled, you you mean metaphorically? Metaphorically, yes, yes. Hi, Frank. Hold on, hold on, guys. Hey, Frank. How are you? All righty. Hi, Frank. Uh, Frank Thayer is our guest tonight. And, and Frank, just before you, because we couldn't get a hold of you, we were talking to one of our listeners who was just finishing a story and that's what we were just, that's why we will take a minute to let him finish before we start. Is that okay? All right. Yeah, go ahead. I, go ahead, Charles. Just stand the line, Frank. Yeah. I, I think much of this volatility and the subterfuge and everything that's going on in his life has to do with him making amends with her. There's an event wow. that has to happen. And, okay. I, and that is who is attacking him, wow. even though it might be, but why, why would Ramona? Him. Why would Ramona attack him all these years later? I won't say it right now, <laughs> uh, and I won't say it on the air. Well, but, a sworn woman—you never know. Yeah, uh-huh, but I yeah. mean, if she passed they away can years be mean, ago, and, and it could be a scorn-worthy event that happened. Okay, well, and, you know what? We will, um, um, Charles. If you and I could uh, uh, go into private messages and kind of follow up. Um, that would probably be the best way to handle this right now. Um, yeah, because right now we have a guest. Yeah. All right. yep. But thank so we'll, you, Charles. We'll, I will send thank you an email you, Charles. and we'll start doing this. Uh, it, things will get even better than they were thank before. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Charles. God bless you all. Thanks, and Merry Charles. Christmas. Okay, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Charles. See you all. Okay, Frank, I, I'd love to st- Frank, I, I, I'd love to start things going. I did a real mini setup of the Aztec crash in the first half hour but what I'd love you to do is, this is like a two-part thing, and I want to turn it over to you, and it's this. Why don't you walk us right through the Aztec crash, because you know a lot more about it than I do, why it's important, but also why the research in your book is so new. 
That's what fascinates me. You've uncovered a whole bunch of new information about the crash that for years was thought of as simply a hoax. By all of us. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so, so walk us through I'm, the events, Frank. Okay. I'm very familiar with your appearances, of course, and, and your work on UFO Chronicles and and so forth. But the Aztec incident, I'm a New Mexico native, by the way, and I... I considered it a hoax for most of my life. Uh, in On March 25th, 1948, a couple of policemen were patrolling the empty highway between Cuba, New Mexico, and Aztec, New Mexico. And they saw this, and they'd seen vehicles before, they'd seen things in the air. And they watched this flying saucer, as they described it, a glowing saucer, wobbling and going in a northwesterly direction. And they were sort of following it in the pre-dawn darkness, four o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And around 5, 15, 5.30, a rancher uh, south of Aztec saw this thing go right over his house, and it seemed to be in trouble. And it ran directly into a bluff on a, at a mesa just north of his house. And it it didn't crash. It bounced up and went over the mesa, seemingly undamaged. The shower of sparks flew, and it went straight north. And it and he lost sight of it, but about 10, mi- 10 miles to the north, this thing landed on a mesa that we now know as Hart Canyon Mesa. Now, the uh, oil field employees who work that area, oil, oil and gas wells are all over the place, uh, got a call that there was a fire out in Hart Canyon Road. And they got out there just before dawn, and they were afraid that there was a fire near the oil drip tanks at the base of the mesa. And no, they found out there wasn't a problem there, that there was a smoldering fire uh, on the mesa. They went up on the mesa, and they saw this disc, 100 feet in diameter, and it was just sitting slightly canted on the top of the mesa. And they didn't know what to do. These guys were 18, 19, 20 years old, and they were just flabbergasted. What well, is were this? These they didn't fire, know what it was. Were they firemen at this point? No, they were oil field, field employees. Oh, okay. And they were going out to protect the investment of the El Paso um, oil company. So, uh, but others were coming out. Uh, They'd heard this this problem, and within an hour or so, about 16 people had gathered on the mesa, a couple of ranchers from the area close to the mesa, and a couple of policemen. We assume it was the policemen that had been following it from Cuba northwest toward Aztec, and, and also a man of the cloth saw a lot of traffic headed that way. He went to the mesa and got up on there, and... They were they were milling around looking at this thing, and the oil field employees, being young guys, uh, a couple of them got up and walked around on it, looking at the wow. dome and seeing uh, what they described as today mirrored sunglasses. They were looking in these portholes, and they could see inside it. And there appeared to be a tiny hole in one of the ports, uh, no, no bigger than the size of a quarter. And... 
uh, I don't know if they were scared or not. They just thought it was the most amazing thing they'd seen until a helicopter came flying over the Mesa, and they had never seen a helicopter. 1948, the helicopter was a new invention primarily, hadn't been in mm-hmm. service very long. And they didn't know what was more interesting to them, this, this aluminum disc or this uh, helicopter that was flying over. But, but, but before you go on, when you say tiny hole, are you saying all the portholes were just tiny holes? No. No, they were, they were larger. They were like uh, ship's portholes okay. around the dome. But they were mirrored, and you had to get up close to them and to see through them. It was sort of like mirrored sunglasses. Mm-hmm. But there was a actual penetration of one of those ports by a size of a quarter. No one knew what it was. And I'm not sure who opened up the saucer, whether it was the oil field guys, but they had a long pole, or whether it was the military when they arrived a couple of hours later. But they stuck this pole through the hole and did some poking, and they they found knobs at the other side of the interior, and they they poked it, and the saucer opened up. Now, you you probably saw the day the Earth stood still. Mm-hmm. Sure. And they described it as something like that. The thing just opened up, uh, and they were able to get in, and they saw bodies inside the cabin. And, wow. Uh, uh, well, were the bi- well, yeah, and, and tell us about the bodies, just real. real. The bodies, as described, were little guys. As Stanton Friedman usually says, they were three to four feet in height. They were wearing some sort of one-piece suit, and they were dead. And it looked as though they weren't burned, but they looked charred. They had very dark skin, and it appeared as though they had been burned. They uh, they found maybe 14 to 16 of them in the saucer, and they were taken out. But as soon as the military arrived... They came up on on the the mesa and began separating everybody, swearing them to secrecy, and then getting rid of them. And from that day on, there was no discussion. Everybody, and of course at that time, remember how patriotic people were. Just finished World War II. We were in the beginning years of the Cold War. And so people, people believed the government. Right. It's hard to believe now, but they did. And so most of them didn't say anything for the next 40, 50 years. Right, but and I would say people believe the government up until very recently. People mm-hmm. pretty much I, did. <laughs> and, and now, of course, we are aware of the kind of lies that the government has told, especially about this field. Where can, I, can I interject real quick? Uh, and that's a very... Uh, important point you made there, Nancy, up to recently the people believed the government. Uh, what do you think was the turning point? Do you think it was the Kennedy assassination, Roswell? What do you think turned it for the, for the people to stop believing in the government? Because that's an excellent point. I, I think that people were skeptical of the Kennedy assassination, the JFK. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I, I remember the day it happened, and certain my first reaction was, I'm, I'm a shooter, and there's no way one man could do that with a telescopic sight on a, a bolt-action rifle. And the government story and the Warren Commission just didn't wash for me as a young journalist. Well, but, Frank, how old were you when, in 63? Uh, let's see. I was 23 when uh, the Kennedy assassination happened. 
Wow. Okay. So you okay. were grown up. Wow. Well, did you see, um, do you think that the rise of the conspiracy class started in, in uh, after the Kennedy assassination? Very, very likely. Mm-hmm. We, we began to be accepting of the fact that there are alternative explanations. And, and let's remember that nobody knew about Roswell until 1980. Right. Until Stanton Friedman ran across uh, the one person who broke it open, Roswell died in one day. And uh, Frank Scully was actually the first person to publish a book about a landed flying saucer. He was the first one, and it turned out that everything he said was accurate, and where he got his story was bona fide. And but it was, yeah, now here's the thing. People were hooting Frank Scully, saying it was a total hoax, that Frank right. Scully was making oh, it yeah. up. Where did Scully get a story that, that would convince you that it was real? Okay. Uh, Scully starts out with the lecture at the University of Denver. Scientist X gets up on the stage right. before, and he talks about this saucer found uh, within 500 miles of their, that stage. But... We know that person was Silas Newton, who has been very much uh, vilified since that time. But Silas Newton knew a lot of geomagnetic scientists, and these are people that he worked with during the war, and they are the ones who told him about this because they thought that the government in 1949 was going to reveal all within a few months. Right, right. And so Silas Newton and the scientist gave Scully the story, and he decided to write a book. And, but it was so unbelievable at the time that it turned out that it was seen as a hoax, but not immediately. The book sold 50,000 copies, which was a great bestseller in its day in 1950. Yeah. Yeah. And then along comes uh, the spoiler. As in every story, there's got to be one. Mm-hmm. And that was J.P. Kahn. Khan wanted to buy the story from Scully. Scully wouldn't sell. And so Khan decided he was going to fix them good. And he pursued Silas Newton and Leo Gabauer, who was his friend, and had them tried in a Denver court, district court, for fraud that had nothing to do with flying saucers. But Khan's article in True Magazine was what killed... It was... Um, a good story. I've read the article, and it's very convincing if you don't know any background. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so from then, from 1952-53 on, it was considered to be a hoax and nothing but a hoax. Right, right. And Until, and what about and and, uh, and Dr. G? Do you want to bring him in? Right. Dr. G, Scully says, was a composite of eight or nine scientists. Now, there was one major Dr. G... And Scott Ramsey has uh, dug up, we think that it was a fellow named Highland, but we also thought it could be Tate. But in, in the book, US, U, The Aztec UFO Incident, there's a little biography of all those eight scientists that it could have been. And we have actually the story right there. And the scientists came up with the stuff. They, they looked at it. They investigated the saucer. They told Scully. Scully wrote a book. J.P. Kahn delivered the hoax stake in the heart. And then from then on, 
until probably 1986, it was considered to be a dead issue. Mm. That's when we And then what revived it? Well, we, but wait, but wait, who paid Khan to do this? Khan was a rich guy. He never worked a day in his life. Why, he why, did, he, why did he? Yeah. yeah. Why did he want to squash the story? Well, because he was talking to Scully, and he wanted to buy the story for the San Francisco. Oh, right, right, Chronicle. right. Okay, okay, got it. And right. Scully uh, pushed him off and said nope, and he wrote the book. I see. And Khan did not take well to that, and so, as far as we can tell, it was a vendetta. After that, he was going to get Scully, he was going to get Newton, and and so on, and he did very well at it. And well, um, uh, on the cover of the book, which is um, very intriguing, you talk about the uh, elab- the elaborate cover up, mm-hmm. um, and would would Khan be the first uh, part of that, basically? Yes. Khan got in touch with the FBI. He gave information about these people, and he did some research to find somebody who would file a complaint against Newton and Gebauer, and finally got a, a, a Denver uh, warrant issued for their arrest. And the FBI picked up Newton in California and Gebauer in Arizona, took him to Denver, and there was a trial, and uh, there's details of the trial, but it was a very shady business. And they were convicted of fraud dealing with this one Denver businessman. However, they were, as convicted, they were never sent to jail. Uh, Newton was asked to pay $1,500 court costs, and that was it. And was so, the fraud not connected in any way to the Aztec thing? It, absolutely not. It mm-hmm. had to do with Newton's oil field dealings and things like that. There was nothing to do with flying saucers in that, but the whole goal of it was to ruin the reputation of Newton, therefore casting doubt on the whole Aztec story. Right. And and how did Scully end up? After Scully this? was a famous guy. He was a Variety magazine uh, columnist. He wrote several books on his own, nothing to do with flying saucers, and he was well-respected, and he he died in the 1970s, and uh, I think that one of the things that we like was the fact that we were able to restore his reputation, that what he had to say, he was very careful in his book. Everything we found in the book has been verified one way or another. Wow. In one chapter... Well- now, we have this guy, William Steinman, who enters stage left, and he's the one who reawakened the Aztec story. But he went to uh, Aztec. Tell us how that happened. He just, he happened on a copy of Scully's book in a, in a bookstore. And he drove a whole way to, uh, to Colorado and took the route south to Aztec and began looking around to see if he could find the place where it crashed. And in his book, he has these descriptions of what Scully says, where the saucer landed, and what he found, what Steinman found, when he went to the crash site. Everything is perfectly aligned. Everything that Scully said turned out to be accurate, and Scully never went to New Mexico. Scully got everything he got from the scientists and from Silas Newton. 
And and were these scientists also involved after the government came in? And uh, you know, in other words, they weren't just people who showed up before the government showed up, right? No, the scientists weren't there when the saucer was recovered. The scientists were government employees working on secret projects, and they were at Los Alamos when the saucer was brought in for their study. Wow. And then later, and that was 1948, and later they told the story to Newton because they didn't think that it was going to be long before the government would tell the public what they had found. Right. And, and what and what cha- what do you think changed their minds? Since these are pretty well placed people, thinking mm-hmm. you know it was going to go that way. Well, Scully himself says that those who would tell the story for nothing in 1949 uh, wouldn't tell it for twenty million dollars in 1950. Right, and why? That they were read the riot act by the government and sworn to secrecy forever, mm-hmm. and none of them ever spoke of it. Yeah. After that. And, and and I presume that they are all dead? Yes, they are all gone. So and, after uh, William Simon visited, after he visited the site and um, kind of resurrected Frank Scully, how did the story get back into national consciousness? Well, we could say, and I've been interested in New Mexico UFOs for a long time, but Steinman published his book, UFO Crash at Aztec, a big, heavy book, 1986. I never heard about that book until about 2005, 2006. Uh, It was one of those books that never really made it um, above the horizon. But he wrote his story, which has most of the major points, and, and... but it wasn't at the same time he published his book, Scott Ramsey was poking around Aztec and accidentally mm-hmm. came across the story. Not with Steinman, he hadn't seen Steinman, not with Scully, he hadn't written, but he heard people in Aztec talking about the old crash site. And so. Well, now, and also, was, uh, there's also Wendell Stevens. Um, yes. Uh, okay, so, and, and um, the Ramseys did not. Also did not know um, Wendell Stevens, I guess? No. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, they never met. And But Wendell Stevens, it was his bankroll that got the book on the streets. Mm-hmm. But according to Steinman, the book never sold more than a couple of hundred copies. Uh, You'll have to see if we, ha- if we have a copy, because um, I think I would remember a 620. I don't think we do have a copy, but... No. Um, it's a big, thick book. Yeah. And, and 600 pages. Wendell Stevens himself uh, ended up with his reputation trashed, either for good or for ill. Yes, and he has some of his stories in the UFO crash at Aztec. And, but he, he did get mixed up in some things that, that cost him dearly. Mm-hmm. And right, that's right. That's another story, and I just know what I read in, in Steinman's book about the, the difficulties Stevens had. Mm-hmm. But he ended up... Uh, being charged with all sorts of things, I don't know if he was guilty of them or not. But once well, you are, I be- yeah, yeah. But I believe Wendell Stevens was also uh, had, I believe, at one time the most extensive library of photographs of anybody on the planet, basically of crashes. I've heard that, but I don't yeah. know uh, what happened to them. Uh, a lot of people with photographs suffered break-ins, right. and. Uh, I've, I'm not telling tales out of school, but even Scott Ramsey said 
that once somebody broke into his house, and the only thing that was ever was missing was a couple of files of photographs that he had. Wow. Well, how how did you get involved with the Ramses? Because I they were on our show. Um, it's been a few years, years ago. Now. Three years yeah. ago. Well, I read Steinman, and I have a website, frankthere.net, and I I did a an article on my website about Steinman's UFO crash at Aztec, coming to the conclusion that perhaps Aztec was not a hoax after all. And that is where the Ramses found me. Uh-huh. And I'm I'm a journalism professor at New Mexico State University. And so he got in touch with me and said, Hey, we're working on the Aztec story and we want to know if you'd like to get involved. That was two thousand nine. Okay. Cool. And yeah. He sucked me right in. Well, were you formally interested in this topic? Oh, yes. I think that I was, because of New Mexico connections, I I remember subscribing to Coral Lorenzen's newsletter years ago. Right, right. And, but certainly I remember very clearly when the Berlitz book came out in 1980, and there it was, the Roswell incident. There is, and I decided right then and there, if how many cases do you have to prove to prove the reality of the flying saucer? And the answer is just one. You right. prove one, you prove the case. And Roswell, I felt, was proved. And today, I think we do accept that beyond a reasonable doubt. And but Aztec still was under my radar until I found Steinman's book. And once I got together with the Ramses and saw their research and how they had found. And here it is, two living witnesses who didn't know each other. Both were on the Mesa on March 25th, 1948. And both of them told separate stories in their later years Mm -hmm. that were virtually identical. The number of people on the Mesa, the shape of the craft, where it was, how it was lying on the Mesa, everything, the number of policemen that were on the Mesa that morning. And in a courtroom... You have two witnesses who don't know each other and tell the same story. That's hard to refute. And how did the Ramses find these two separate people? Well, I think the Ramses have spent close to a half million dollars going from state to state. They are willing to go get up and go someplace to find somebody, sit down with them and talk to them. They've been to about 20, 24, 25 states following up leads to witnesses. And that is why they were able to find Doug Nolan and Ken Farley, both of whom are dead now. Wow, so everybody's dead. Wow. Well, Stan Friedman says we're racing the undertaker. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, now, is there a final resting place for this particular saucer in our government warehouses? <laughs> uh, you know it's true. I know it's true. The government says they don't exist. Uh, we, As far as we know, when the saucer was broken apart and taken from Hart Canyon Mesa, it went on a dirt road down to as where they could find a, a highway, took it to Los Alamos, and after that it disappears. Okay, now wait, wait, yeah, wait one second here. Um, yes. We used to have, uh, I used to do a magazine called UFO Magazine. Yes. And we had a columnist who really disputed that the size of these things could not have fit down any country road. And mm-hmm. that's George Early. 
Um, what do you think? Because uh, I believe this one is 100, 100 meters? A simple, it was 100 feet in diameter. Now, let's look at it this way. Scully says that the saucer was taken apart in three separate sections, that it was held together by pins and grooves. Now, that's what he said. I don't know. But if you could take it apart to, say, 30 feet, and you could put it on a, a flatbed edge up, remember the flying saucers are not heavy like a, a B-52. Right. We know that the metal that they are made of, or whatever the substance is, is extremely light and extremely tough. They proved that with the description of the Roswell crash. So uh, we presume that they were able to get it onto a flatbed uh, edge up, and then move it down the road. True, a hundred and foot, hundred foot diameter uh, vehicle couldn't go much of anywhere. Right, and even even upright, you've got trees to worry about, you know. And not in New Mexico, trees uh, are called scrub. <laughs> That's right. right. I was just, I was just going to say you uh, you've got chaparral, but you've got. <laughs> so. so. It disappears uh, we, at Los Alamos. Right. And Ramsey, in 2012, did a, uh, a dry run. He brought an expert in to see, to recreate the moving of the craft from Hart Canyon Mesa down through the canyon and on to a road where it could go to Los Alamos. So he proved, mm-hmm. proved to himself that it could be done. And, right. And, and But are there any government... Uh, records that support that they took a flying saucer and or 16 bodies? No. Have you found anything? Uh, now, Ramsey has been to Maxwell Air Force Base, which is the head archives of the U.S. Air Force, and nothing is available that ever says anything about flying saucers and recoveries. They just didn't happen. Roswell, there's no records on Roswell. They're gone. Well, yeah, but they were they were lost in a believe a fire. Uh, yes, that's so again, they tell you, con- Nancy. Convenient mm-hmm. things, right? And it's just that we have with Roswell, they've uncovered what close to six hundred witnesses, and it's very very hard to uh, to argue against six hundred people who know something about it. Aztec right. is more is better contained. Mm-hmm. Remember, they sort of stumbled all over themselves with Roswell, but by Aztec, eight months later. They were able to completely contain it. There was no debris because the saucer landed intact. And so there was nothing to, aside from military residue on the Mesa, to say that anybody had ever been there. And they uh, they did recover the land, made it look like nothing had ever happened there. Right, and I bet they, right. I bet they sat back in wonder, noticing how... When you call somebody a fraud or a hoax, how easy their job suddenly is. They don't have to worry about a cover-up. Everybody no. just bought the other story. And I, I think that that's uh, the victory of disinformation. And one of the I've taught propaganda and public opinion in university. Disinformation is a deadly weapon. You can tell part of the truth, some lies. You can tell uh, tell people uh, assassinate their characters. And you have severely muddied up the the water so that nobody really knows what the truth is likely to be. Right. And people and, and what I hate is when this starts happening that people 
uh, good people will say, you know what? He said, she, she said, I just, you know, let's throw the lot of them out. Right. And good people get tossed out all the time with that kind of sullying. You know? I know. It, and we're fortunate to have been able to find uh, Silas Newton's unpublished, unpublished autobiography. And extremely educated, intelligent man. And in his autobiography, he's very clear that he believed that this is the real thing. He told the truth and nothing but the truth about flying saucers. There was nothing in that to suggest that he was a clever fellow who perpetrated a hoax. And well, and Newton and Newton was, uh, you know, was never debunked, right? Well, uh, by inference, J.P. Kahn did it. By inference, by but not, he, but you know, yeah. That he had a bad deal with this guy in Denver. Therefore, there was no such thing as flying saucers, and he was a liar. But no one's ever proved that. And with Steinman, and now with Ramsey, uh, we proved just the opposite, that everything that Scully has in his book was extremely accurate. Wow. And By the Steinman way, guys, we have a caller. Lou's on the mm-hmm. line. Pardon oh, me, Bill? Go ahead, caller. Good. Well, Lou, Lou, um, uh, yeah, Lou, uh, Lou Sheehan um, was sort of helping me through this whole early part of the uh, interview. He, well, go ahead, Lou. You, you know stuff. Yeah, I have some familiarity with the case. I'd like to know. I've you know uh, seen Paul Kimball's Paul Kimball's movie, and I've read books about. I know about Steinman. Uh, what I'd like to know, just because I realize, it, essentially, you've been giving the story, and now I'd like to hear what the new evidence is that you found. But before you do that, could you, if I understand correctly, that was an early radar base, and there's some inference that that might have had a connection with the crashing of, of the craft, yes, and se- and secondly that there was a concrete slab placed, I use the word surreptitiously, at the landing, at the crash site. Yes. If you could explain why that is the case. But I personally, because I have a background in it, would like to know what you found that's new. Apparently these two witnesses, and is there anything else? And then can you tell us about these witnesses and what they said? Those are my, my okay, questions. Okay, well, let's start with the radar bases. And I've been to the site of the Elvado radar base. Right after World War II, with the Cold War just starting, you had um, extremely powerful radar set up in New Mexico. And there is a lot of consideration that this may have had some effect on the flying saucers. Now, uh, if if these radar bases are real, then uh, obviously they were there for a reason. And they could have detected a flying saucer, and they could have uh, resulted in some anti-aircraft fire. We don't know. But, or as some people say, the radar beams were so powerful at that time that they could cook birds in flight. Well, could they poke a hole the size of a quarter? I don't know. Hmm. I don't think so. I don't think radar could do that. Uh, Maybe that's with the uh, internal mechanics of this ship. Well, sure. That was always what I assumed. yeah, I mean, it was like the Roswell crash. They could, uh, uh, you could, um, the targeting radars, the pinpoint radars, could disrupt whatever envelope that these craft were flying in. These anti-gravity electromagnetic envelopes, that, and so as a result, they would lose yes. their navigational abilities. And so, there is a possible cause, although there could have been something above the atmosphere that penetrated their portholes. I don't know. 
But going on to your second point, the concrete slab, and I've seen it, uh, this mesa, there's nothing else going on on the mesa. The concrete slab uh, could have been used to brace a crane that's used to, halt, to lift the pieces of the saucer to put on the flatbed. And it was made with rebar and, and uh, poured concrete with aggregate from the area. And, but there's and no what do debunkers the, say? I was going to say, what do debunkers say is the reason for the large concrete slab in the middle of nowhere? Well, they would so, say that it's a, a pump base. They would say that it's a cap to a well, all sorts of things. But Ramsey drilled a hole in it to see how far it went. And if it had been a well cap, it would have blown him to kingdom come. And it was too small. And besides, there's no studs sticking out of it for screwing down a a pump. And because why do you have a well at the top of Mesa when you have the wells at the bottom of the Mesa? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Why go an extra uh, 7,500 feet uh, to do that? So, but the debunkers would would say that it's just a, a random piece of concrete that was put there. But when you see it, you say it doesn't make any sense. Well, it reminds me of a couple of other times that people have gone to sites. And one time is the crash, the uh, Mexican Roswell, uh, when Bill was out Kuyami. and they, Kuyami, and they saw that they had dumped concrete in a hole. Um, yes. And then I saw photos of what people, what, what the government did with the, Mon, <clears throat> the Montauk base. And basically, they simply poured concrete in all kinds of unusual places, you know, um, underground and stuff. And yes. um, uh, a researcher took lots and lots of photos of the kind of electrical wire, uh, not conduits, but fuse box type things that you could see that people chipped out of the concrete and could see. I mean, it just, it seems that burying stuff in concrete is a typical government, what the heck, right? <laughs> in this case, though, they're back then to, to support a crane that could lift the UFO onto a flatbed, if you follow what, what he's saying, that it gave enough support to a crane to allow... Yeah, but Frank, how, how big was the concrete that you saw, the concrete platform? Uh, I, gee, I'm not sure about the dimensions, but it seemed to be about uh, three feet by four feet. Not oh, enough. that's all? It's not that, that big, but it would be enough for the base of a crane to be to position itself... And because the rest of the dirt on the mesa is silt and would be too soft to support that that one thing. And if you've had any experience with front-end loaders and things like that, you have these supports that go into the ground to keep it right. from rolling or moving. So that's that would be a, certainly a use for that concrete pad, and no one's come up with a better use for it. Well, did Scott or, or, figure out how deep the concrete went? Uh, he drilled a hole in it, and it <clears throat> seems to me, and I'd have to go back and look at the book, but it seems to me it was not that deep. It wasn't that it went more than a, a couple of feet down, just enough oh, to make oh. it solid. And it's still there, and it's still solid. Yeah, because just in case no. there's something underneath. No, he <laughs> went through it. There's, there's nothing underneath. There's just dirt. Mm. And you know, I read. I was interested in Mr. Steinman, and I, he subsequently did some work on Dr. Eric Walker. But I tried to find out what happened to him. Where did he go? 
And the last I could find was that uh, Mr. Steinman, who wrote oh, the book you're yeah. referring to, well, that he became a Christian and kind of pulled out of the whole field, uh, my understanding. I'm sorry now, for that from, anecdote. But. Well, from what I know, uh, he after his book came out, he lost his job in the aerospace industry. Oh. He was fired and nobody else would hire him. He got death threats. And he, he went into seclusion in the Northwest. And he stayed there for since 1988 or 89 until 2010 or 2011, uh, after right when Ramsey and the Ramseys and I were working on the first book. And okay. he came, he's gone back to Arizona. He's living there. And at first, he told the Ramseys, said, I don't ever want to talk about flying saucers ever again in my life. But he's changed his mind, and he was, he's been very cooperative, and he's getting enthusiastic again because he realized that his story is now considered to be uh, fact, not uh, fiction. And I'm glad Isn't to see he also he, he used to be a pretty significant UFO researcher, and he interviewed a man at Penn State University named Dr. Eric Walker about the MJ-12 documents. He got Walker to admit quite a lot about the existence of MJ-12 and so forth. I mean, it's well, unfortunate a, that we lost him for several decades. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah, um, the Henry but I should let you talk about that. It's fascinating. Of course, you have to go back to the Mothman uh, thing for that. But Henry Cole seemed to get around. And, okay, now, um, now and getting who, back and who, your, your yeah. witnesses. I'm sorry. Who is Indrid Cold again? I, I see the name all the time, and I, that's an elusive character, Indrid Cold. Who is that person? He's, he's not a human, as far as I can tell. Uh, right. And he's an extra-dimensional entity of some kind, and I don't know anything about that, and I cannot speak to that. It's just that I've, I watched Richard Gere in the movie and read, read okay. a couple of things, and that's as far as I can go. I believe he shows up at the site of a paranormal to uh, thing and tells he's like a man in black type thing. I yeah, think. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, injured cold. I thought he was based on a real person. I thought it was a real person. No, yeah, no, could be. Yeah, it was sort of like you guys oh, you... worked on on the Maury Island thing, and we and there was a character there who, strangely enough, became involved in the Kennedy investigation. Yes, Reisman. Yeah, Reisman. Yeah, yeah. No, Reisman. Christman. Well, there was Christman, but there was also Bannister, uh, Guy Bannister was sent out by Hoover to investigate the uh, Maury Island crash. And, of course, he winds up one of the people that uh, gets connected to the Kennedy assassination. Um, oh, oh, Bill, that's just coincidental, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. But, but you should talk about your new your new new evidence, and I'll hang up so I don't interrupt the two hosts of the show. Let's see. But I, I so, would like to hear what the new information is, and I'll hang up. Thank you. Bye. Well... Let's see, the, uh, the new information, we found a couple of more people who visited the site in the 1970s, and they would, these were, one person, I'll, just an example, one person showed up in Aztec and asked to be taken to the crash site, and a couple of people living there drove him out in the right direction, and he showed them where it was, he went up and took a bunch of pictures and then left, and he spent the night with them. He was a strict vegetarian, very fit-looking guy with, with longish hair, 
a very, uh, he said he was a, a former a retired a military guy, and then he disappeared again. And so this, again, was something that, that Steinman found. And so people, even before the resurrection of Aztec, people knew about it and came there. Uh, another part of our uh, the investigation is a, an Air Force fellow named Donald Bass. It's in the in chapter uh, chapter three, and he was supposedly part of the cleanup crew at Aztec after they had removed the saucer. He was there to help sanitize the site, and for some reason. He never got beyond Airman Third Class, and he was a, a lifer in the in the Air Force. And a fellow from Aztec met him in in a, his UK station, and heard the story. And he then this guy also disappeared, and we in we thought he was dead, but now it's possible that he is still alive. Even he he in his late 80s at this stage, but finding him is has been almost impossible. People don't want to be found after the government has talked to you. That's what I was going to ask. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And, yeah, so it seems to be. Well, did um, Stanton, getting a forward or a preface from Stanton is wonderful. Um, What does he particularly, does he give you encouragement? Because he certainly has been, you know, um, trying. He's been been terrific. Uh, He has encouraged Scott. I think he respects Scott because Scott is a bulldog researcher. Scott, will yeah, like Frank anywhere. Faschino, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and Scott and Frank Faschino are good friends too. Oh, okay. And and I think that I'm I do research, I do a lot of writing, but I have to sit at the feet of people like that who never give up and will not take no for an answer. Right. Scott is the nicest guy in the world, but he'll keep coming back. To try and get information, and right. and this is how he got these interviews. And to me, the mainstay, the foundation of this, the incident, are the two interviews that he got of living witnesses who were there, mm-hmm. and then a third witness who actually secondhand, uh, the preacher who was on the mesa and wanted to give last rites to the little people that they found there. And he went back to his church in Mancos, Colorado, about 40 miles north of Aztec. And he was told to keep quiet, but he told his parishioners, a couple of his parishioners, Mm. that what he had seen, and it had changed his whole life, that he couldn't see the world the same way after what he saw on that mesa. do um, Do you have the names of the full 16? We have, and... In the book, we have the names of as many as we have mm-hmm. can, and there's. Well, yeah, uh, I'm just wondering: did they die? Did any of them die of uh, radiation-related problems? Apparently not. As a matter of fact, and this is something that is anecdotal, but almost everybody who was on the mesa that day did very well in life. These oil field workers who didn't have two nickels to rub together ended up with substantial uh, grub stakes mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives and did very well. Mm. Uh, it reminds us of uh, Mr. Brazel mm-hmm. and our rancher in Roswell and how all of a sudden he had money for a new truck. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and uh, a meat locker in Tularosa. Mm-hmm. And so the these people, almost every one of them, profited and became very rich. And is that an accident? Is it coincidence? Uh, I don't know. I'm not rich. You're not rich. And I, I don't think you get rich accidentally. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well right, I mean... Ramsey can talk about. Right. Right. Well, um, so you spoke to new witnesses, and... So where do you go from here? Where do you take the Aztec crash from here? Well, there's still the search to find out who the major Dr. G's were. And we're on the track of finding that. The one person who is most likely to have been uh, a guest in Sully's home, a, a confidant of Silas Newton's, and... We, we think we may have that one down. And second, following Donald Bass, uh, looking for him, and we found one of his old buddies in New Orleans, and this guy said, oh, yeah, he survived Vietnam. We thought he had mm-hmm. died in Vietnam. And it, had, he had heard from him as, as uh, late as the late 90s. And where, the, where he is now or whether he's still alive, we still don't know. But I'm telling you, Scott Ramsey is going uh, to keep looking. And the minute he finds out where the fellow is or was, mm-hmm. he's down there to do some some research. Whoa, somebody's it's, having an attack in the background. What's going on over there? Yes. Now, I don't know. Thank you, Chris. Uh, what, what we can do about documentation. Forensics, I mean, who has parts of saucers? That's... That's something that uh, we know that in Roswell, every scrap was accounted for. Right, and that was, yeah, that was the Army Air Force, right, at the time. And so in the case of the Aztecs, since it didn't, uh, I mean, who, uh, which military rolled out and took it? Uh, The Army? They are not sure, but remember, the Army Air Forces became the United States Air Force in 1948. That's right. They split on August 1st, 1947. Yes. And so they could have been wearing Army uniforms, but were the new U.S. Air Force. And, and that's why the people, the witnesses, were not clear as to what kind of military it was, whether it was Army or Air Force. Well, did they, did, uh, and, but the general thought is that Maxwell was the place to look this, the information, go this in that the direction? The repository of all, like, crash data and all that stuff, it's right. all at Maxwell Air Force Base. And... At least the unclassified stuff is. But there's things that you can't read. They, mm-hmm. they will not allow you to see things. We have, we have all heard about photo warehouses, mm-hmm. and I know that every aircraft crash has movie film, black and whites, color photos taken. I'm sure there were photos taken of Roswell. I'm sure there were photos taken of Aztec. What happened to these? We don't know, and we we may never know. Right, well, we know right. about the photos. Well, we uh, we know about the movie film taken at Edwards Air Force Base because um, Gordon Cooper tells us about that and how yes. that film was taken away and never to be seen again. Right, and every once in a while they talk about there's there's footage. Um, what what do they call it when they mount a camera on? Uh, gun camera. Uh, gun camera. Gun ca- yeah, gun camera footage. Sure. Yeah, they have yeah. A lot of that. But well, Frank, seen it. 
Yeah, and Frank, what do you tell your students? I mean, what you've been teaching now, <clears throat> I'm sorry, journalism for a long time now, and have you seen a difference in your students? Or, in other I, words, yeah. I hope that they're more skeptical than they used to be. I was very naive. I think mm-hmm. I was born with that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that students are probably more skeptical now about what the government tells them. And I think to be a good journalist, you have to be skeptical. You can't accept anything at face value anymore. As well, and, as you, and you started your career in what year in journalism? I graduated in 1962, and I went to work in newspapers then. And I, I went to Canada. I lived 11 years in Toronto, and I taught journalism there. Came back to New Mexico, then I, I went ahead and got my master's and Ph.D. and became a professor at New Mexico State University because I love the state. I love New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, the land of enchantment. Yes. It's got everything wrong with it, but it's still a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Unemployment's highest in the nation. A violent youth death is highest, second highest in the nation. I don't oh. I can try out. Well, if you, if you legalize marijuana, <laughs> I'm... Actually, you know, I've, I've problem been solved. Yeah, but you, you realize um, on the on that front, uh, they have uh, quietly uh, slipped a an important thing. Medical marijuana is no longer banned at the federal level. I don't know whether anybody realizes this. No, I didn't they, know that. I didn't yeah, know they that, just no. they just passed a federal bill, federal spending bill. Uh, it has a provision oh. that lifts the medical so marijuana ban. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the me- medical in Colorado for sure. Well, not not uh, recreational, but medical. So you have mm-hmm. to have a medical reason, like I'm I'm alive on the earth for mm-hmm. for seventy years. That's my medical reason. <laughs> I'm old. Yeah, I and I'm I'm not exactly four twenty friendly myself, but I do see that there's that's the trend. Right, and it would solve a lot of other problems, you know. But but in terms of the um, the reason I asked you about your early journalism is because was there a point in your journalistic life where you were told to tilt a story? To, you know, in other words, did you yourself see the press, the media doing terrible stuff, or did would you say that not on your watch? You never saw not it. My experience in my earlier years, uh, my publisher. Uh, never told me how to slant a story. He just wanted a story. And the guy I was working for in a weekly here in Las Cruces, he actually turned me on to Carl Lorenz's Lorenz's work, and we went out and we interviewed people who'd seen flying saucers in Las Cruces, and that was in 62, 63, 64. And so that's where I first was introduced to the actual witnesses. Yeah, were you doing stories with a with a negative bent? No, no. no. I, uh, I I looked at it as straight. This is what you tell me. This is what I'm going to report. Hmm. Uh, the but I do know that in recent years, and ever since the um, well, we know of all the the attempts from the Condon Committee on back that mm-hmm. the Associated Press does not print flying saucer stories. They That's will not correct. print UFO stories. And I've asked them about, I have graduates working for AP, and they say, we don't know why, it's just, we just don't cover this kind of stuff. It's not considered to be news. Whereas in other countries, UFO stories, like in Canada, UFO stories are fairly common, and they're not looked down on the way they are here. But the um, the evil eye is on UFOs 
from the government start in the 1940s saying this these things do not exist and you will not publish anything because you'll be held up to ridicule pilots feel the same way police feel the same way and it makes it very tough to get the truth out no that's very true the the, the um and worse when it comes to what news organizations will and won't publish about stories like flying saucers and the paranormal, there is a frame and the paranormal and flying saucers and stuff like that are ghosts are literally outside that frame. And even though in some, even though in some, I mean, that frame will move based on the, the editorial bent of the, of the news agency. So, I mean, it's one frame for Fox news and it's one frame for maybe MSNBC that far more liberal, mm-hmm. but yet none of them are going to report UFO stories except as these kind of human interest anomalies. Right. They have to but, have a quote, logical explanation, unquote, and you read the story with a twinkle in your eye. Yes. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, recently, there was the, uh, there was the big story of the UFO over Southern California, and there it was lighting up the night sky, and people were calling the sheriff station over in Ventura mm-hmm. County, and everything else. And it turned out to be a missile test. But the thing was, the the LA um, news channels, uh, two uh, two four and seven, really picked it up and just ran with it as these great UFO stories, and then, oh, but it was really a Navy missile. So they love to do that. And so, yeah, that's part of that frame. Exactly. That's exactly how it's done. And if if it was an unexplained sighting, it would not appear on the news at all. They knew what they were doing. Well, yeah, and and, and, um, did you, Frank, ever happen to see a movie called UFO? It's... um, there's a period after each letter. It's a movie. From the 1970s. No, no, no. UFO from the 50s. The one that... Um, oh, that one. Okay, yeah. The one that has... Uh, in other words... Al Chop. But, Al Chop, but it also has two... Oh, that was 1956. Yeah. I have that, a bad copy of it. Yeah. And that was played very straight. Yes. And, and at the end, there were two, um, you know, like... Uh, I think they were from Blue yeah, Book. Yes. Yeah. The two mm-hmm. known motion picture films, shorts, mm-hmm. the um, the Tremonton, Utah case, and the one in Montana. Right, right, and, right. And excellent movie footage showing. And, of course, film is much better for documentation than mm-hmm. digital photography. because Oh, sure. You can make anything with a digital uh, instrument. And you can make right, but in that film, I mean, when you talk about one case, at the end of that film, it, it's very important. But that, I, I brought it's that, convincing. yeah. And that was an example of when it seems as though the official word was going to be not disclosure, but just, you know, let's all look at, let's all examine, let's put our best scientific minds on this, let's all look at mm-hmm. this, and not just black budget people who. You know, I think see weaponry, perhaps. And that's something else you bring up too. That the whole idea of 
a cover-up has shifted over the years. Like it's not been one cover-up that came in on the second day after Roswell and that's the way it's been. It has always been, uh, it has seemed to move over the years. Like it seemed in the very early 50s that rather than covering up, there was a marginalization going on. Like we don't know exactly what it is we're dealing with. So until we do, it's really best off to look at it as fiction than look at it as something else. Then something seemed to change around the late 1960s when after the Hildale, Michigan, uh, 1966 cases, um, something seemed to change. And it was more like um, we're just, rigidly not going to talk about it, even though it's absolutely obvious that we're deliberately not talking about it. Yes. And you look at the response of presidents to this, like, well, Gerald Ford, of course, was in the Michigan case, uh, was involved in that, I believe. But uh, in the 70s, I can remember it, it appeared, everybody was hopeful, well, now the government's finally going to let us know what they know. And then it slipped back again. And But I've come to the the conclusion that the government will never, never reveal what it knows. They no, I don't think so either. I think that um, if if it if, if the secrets escape passively, that's one thing. But I mean, all but the way back, ho- there. What about Hollywood? Well, the secrets may escape through Hollywood. I mean, the, I there were so many pictures in the 1950s where I think it's, 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 it's more science and less fiction. But when you go back to 1950, there is Harry Truman talking about flying saucers mm-hmm. to the press, to the public. And it's, if, if anything, that's presidential disclosure. No, I, I think so. And, but you, with E.T. and movies like that and close encounters of the third kind, they're gradually acclimatizing people to the idea of extraterrestrial life. And I don't know if that's on purpose or not, or they're just allowing Hollywood to do whatever they want. But certainly, uh, I don't think, I cannot see any reason why the government would tell the truth. Because if they ever admitted, yes, well, these things are real, the house would fall in on them. Well, worse. I mean, for these things to be uh, for, for these things to be real, there have to be like a number of things to make sense. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, the number of things to make sense are if if the government knows and didn't do anything about it, there would really be a very heightened military alert. When you consider all the um, missile incursions over uh, a sensitive missile sites for UFOs, both here and in the Soviet and in Russia during the days of the Soviet Union. There were those kinds of incursions for there to, to be, um, the state of non-panic that there is now cover up at non-panic means that, that there's more to the story than just there are UFOs circling planet earth. I mean, it really has to be that, that there has to be some collaboration between them and the government, between them and some group of human beings that are benefiting from this. And so that's the other thing. I mean, I have a much darker view of it than, than it's a simple disclosure. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, I was astounded when I read Frank Fushino, and he, 
he trotted out the statistics that there were more combat air- aircraft during the Korean War lost over the United States than there were lost in Korea. And that was during the shoot-them-down phase of yep. government policy. And I think that uh, flying saucers shot down a lot of American planes, and probably Soviet planes, too. And Oh, yeah. And we don't, and it's never been admitted. Right, and 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 the the number of witnesses that Frank spoke to about that, including the military people, that surprised me too. That um, so, I don't think that a presidential disclosure is is ever going to happen. No, but I do think that there really is more collaboration inside the government with whatever these are. And there's a much, much bigger secret, a much, much deeper secret. It's not just flying saucers coming to Earth. There's a much, much deeper secret about their relationship to human beings. And I think that that would be some fundamental issue of um, this fundamental existential issue for human beings that, quite frankly, you know, we could still be in a test tube. Of course. And that's, that's the thing that most of us have come to the conclusion that we cannot examine the laboratory scientists who are studying us anymore. I'm a, an amateur herpetologist. I go out in the middle of the night on the highway with the headlights blazing, mm. see a snake crossing the road. I jump out of the car with my camera, and I, I can grab it and pick it up and take a picture of it, and, and it's not going to have any idea what's going on. Mm, right. I, think we're, I think we are the, uh, the biological specimens being examined. In that case, but I don't well, think. Well, I think more I than examined. I mean, I, uh, I really do think it's more than examined. I think that maybe examined by others, by other species other than the ones that brought us here. But I really don't think it's a case of examination. I think it's a case of <clears throat> maintaining progress. If that makes sense. Mm, could be. I, I, I think that that's uh, speculation, and I think that the Ramses and myself are content to say, we're going to prove this saucer is real. And it that's right. Well, we've got to prove it in one case. That's a start. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and who did yeah. the majority of the writing in, in your book, would you say? Did everybody take part, like one-third, one-third, one-third? Well, I just look at it this way. Without the Ramsey's research, it wouldn't be a book. I think that my right. contribution is um, taking the story and whipping the phrases into, sh- into shape. And I did my share of some of the chapters I wrote by myself. Some of the mm-hmm. chapters Ramsey, the Ramseys wrote. Suzanne wrote uh, a couple of chapters. So uh, I don't think the book would have happened without if one of us were to drop out. Right, right. But I, I, I was going to just praise the writing. It's very clean and clear, and I, I um, like the writing on your site as well. Um, it's just always nice to... Read writing where the where the writer is comfortable and wants to get the message across. Oh, thank you. You know, our our goal was to produce the best flying saucer book that had been written, and Stanton Friedman, I think, has given us the sort of uh, praise thing. He thinks that it may have set the set the bar for the next books to come out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you. I think you've got a really good one here, and I hope. Um, you know, you have a really good Warwick is your um, PR people, and they yes. always yes, I love them. Yeah, they're very good. They're very aggressive. Yes. And, you know, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see in January. So yeah, um, yeah. so um, we are 
Oh, we're, 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 we're right not, up. We're getting up to the end here. Let me, let me just say. Oh, we're getting we up to the end. Remember, uh, we don't have to rush out anymore because we're not really. That's right. That's right. In a hurry. There's no art oh. coming up. So. Oh, well, I, I am, thought yeah. that you were still doing music still, for Heather. I am. I'm still doing the music, so I will leave at midnight on the dot like a pumpkin. <laughs> okay and okay so we still have a minute so but but okay so let talk- me go ahead you you go i've been doing no you go no you go you go what have you go this was going to be about hollywood and star and star wars in other words it looks like at some point hollywood uh, had to do the heavy has always had to do the heavy list lifting for disclosure they're the ones who when you describe this before there was a day the earth stood still you've got this people seeing that very image of the saucer opening that way. And I don't think it's a big shock that six years, eight years later, it shows up on the, on the big screen, you know? Yeah. And so what I was going to ask you, what do you think this new angel's been, um, angel's been a broadcaster as well. And is a, is a star Wars buff. So what do you think the message? of Yeah. Yeah. So what disclosure do you think the new movie is disclosing that, um, that the culture will just have to absorb about flying saucers and the truth behind them. What star Wars? Don't you think that the big releases have big secrets in them that mm, I doubt there's any with star Wars. <laughs> I mean, it's about a galaxy far, far away. No, but it's not really. It's a metaphor. Earth, for... Earth doesn't <laughs> exist in this universe or galaxy. Okay. Well, that was a, that was a, that was a bone <laughs> I was throwing out. I thought it would be for the young folk. Who don't that much know? I, that no, no. Much I can it go was no, <laughs> 1948. No. Well, from a business end of it, Star Wars, it's going to be 500 million before the end of the day. And, and it's, oh, it's already at 500. It's already at 500. It's, it's already at 500. Million. Okay, well then. It might so be 600 case, by the end of the day. Here's a case where Disney made a gamble buying um, the, uh, the Lucas franchise for $4 billion. And it was really Bob Iger, the head of Disney. And he made this gamble that Disney's next move, they can make these one-off pictures and do these items. But I mean, for, for them to buy franchises. So in buying Lucasfilm, what they actually bought were two major franchises, the Star Wars franchise and the Indiana Jones franchise. Yep. And so it, and, and, Oh, and Bill, 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 remember, he, Disney owns Marvel, which now gets the rights back to Howard the Duck. Yeah. And Disney also wow. bought <laughs> Yes and and and, and um, something else Disney also bought. Uh well uh well Amblin is now back at Disney. Well but but, but <laughs> so going with back Amblin, in Disney's... with Marvel with Lucasfilms, Disney really is the franchise studio. Mm-hmm. Right, but it Disney is, yeah. also did. Um, Disney also did a very interesting Tomorrowland piece that you can pull, I think, from the Anomalies Network. I believe, I believe that actually Olive put it up, our friend Olive Phillips, mm-hmm. um, and it's a Disney piece that has Bob Iger. I think is is it um, Bob Iger who? No, it's it's not Bob Iger. It is Eisner. Eisner, and he introduces this, and the, and again, Disney has been in the UFO business. For a really long time, um, did did Disney do the Witch Mountain stuff? No, uh, Disney did the Witch Mountain yep, stuff yep. originally, but remember, Disney also did the first Man in Space episodes back in the middle nineteen fifties with George Hoover advising Walt Disney personally. What was Man in Space? So Dis- 
Man in Space was a three-part series that Disney produced for Walt Disney World um, on television uh, back all the way in the 1950s where George Hoover that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, George Hoover was Disney's personal mm-hmm. assistant um, advising him on this. We will have this to really a, this is, You have to look them up. These were really wonderful, wonderful, um, really wonderful pieces. It is, it is midnight. The witching hour has struck. But, but guess what? So, we decided, we already decided, and this is, we're not slacking because we do have a guest for January 4th. And, and thank you, Frank, for being our guest. Um, we don't spend a lot of, we don't spend months trying to, trying to, to get you. We sort of call and hope that you can come in, and then, and you did, and I, we appreciate it. Um, it's been a lot of fun for me, and I've enjoyed talking with you both. Well, are you okay, writing? We appreciate are you working it. on another book right now? I hope. And not right now. I worked okay. on three books this year, and I, 2016, I'm going to promote Aztec and my one of my fiction books, and go from there. What are uh, your but, fiction? What are your fiction books? Tell us. I write horror fiction in the. Tradition of H.P. Lovecraft. Wow. Wow. This is your I, audience. I, wow. Yeah, Give us some indeed. names. What are some names of your books so I can well, get them? My, I have the Cobston Trilogy, the Ontario okay. Horror. It's it's about uh, an un, a cosmic horror in, uh, in Ontario, and it's illustrated. It's got a great, a great color cover, and... Uh, with a lot of fun to write, took took years, and I'm hoping to be able to sell it. And you can catch me on my website at frankthayer.net, and okay. you can read all about it, Aztec Great. and Cobston, and so forth. Great, Cobston is another one I'm gonna I'm gonna grab, and I have I have some questions in private about a school that maybe you have heard of, uh, and and so we'll 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 touch base maybe, and I can. Follow this well, you know up. where to find me. Yes, thank okay. you. And, okay. And uh, next week, next week, yeah. So next week, guys, uh, if it's if it's okay with Angel, we're gonna have a we're gonna have just a a year end wrap up and just have fun. Okay. Okay. Sure. Me. That's I, next I'm week, down. I think we have yep. a guest though, but that's the. We do not. Point. We do not. Our guests are our listeners. We're gonna have just fun. It's right before okay. New Year's. We will oh, have we gotten through Christmas, and I wish everybody a happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Coming Christmas, up. and good night to you guys. Thank you. Okay, Thank Merry you, Christmas, Frank. everybody. And so we'll see you all next week on Future Theater Live on the P on PSN Radio. This is your co-host, Bill, and my co-host, Nancy. Good night, and good night, Keith. I miss you. Saying good night. Merry Christmas. Chris, Chris, good night, Chris. See you all all next week on Future Theater on the PSN Radio Network. Bye-bye.